Um, you can go ahead and start looking for the book of James. It's almost at the end of the Bible, about seven books or so from the end. We are going to be in that book again in several different passages today. Um, I hope that your Bible opens very quickly to that that book because you have, or your phone, yes, uh, immediately goes to the bookmark you have set because I hope many of you have completed your assignment for this week after our little introduction and you have read the book of James, preferably a couple of times through, and that shouldn't have been too hard because it's pretty short. Uh, if you did read through the book of James, you recognize probably that James reads a lot differently than a lot of the other books of the New Testament. In particular, it reads a lot differently than, say, the letters of Paul. Uh, James is very easy to understand in a lot of ways. Uh, his words are easy to understand. His sentences are easy to understand. Uh, it's hard to miss his meaning. Uh, but at the same time, if you try to figure out the structure of the book of James, you'll have a very hard time. Uh, it's, it's, e it's not easy to figure out. James does not really follow much of an outline. Instead, what he does is he deals with certain themes. And James keep, keeps coming back to these themes over and over again uh, in different places in the book, really from different angles. And in fact, um, I'm still working on this, but there are two or three verses in the book of James that just seem to come out of nowhere. Um, you know, you're reading along and James is, is, is cooking along on, on some theme or some issue, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, squirrel! And, and James just, just all of a sudden just hits you with a verse out of nowhere, and it's usually a really important and really famous verse. Uh, I'm still working on, on how to fit a couple of those in. But James reads, it's been compared to the book of Proverbs, actually. In fact, some people call James wisdom literature, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon. Uh, that's not what it is. James is very clearly a letter. But it does remind us sometimes with, with its terse commands and its moving from one topic to another so quickly of some of those Old Testament uh, Proverbs. But what I would like to do, because of James's um, interesting uh, structure, is to not treat it by going through the book in order. What I'd like to do is have us treat it thematically. Uh, we will deal with all the verses, pretty much all the verses in the book. We'll deal with each of the five or six themes that James brings up and repeats over and over again. And we will start each week in chapter one, because James actually introduces all of his themes right here in the first chapter. And then we will also look each week at the other parts of the book that connect to that part of chapter one and the parts that speak to that particular theme. And the theme that James starts off with is um, not necessarily a pleasant one, but he felt that it was very important for his congregation. Remember, we talked about who James's audience was. James was writing to predominantly Jewish Christians. Uh, they were all over the Middle East and probably all over the Roman world. Uh, they had been scattered from Jerusalem, a lot of them, and some of them had probably been won to Christ by, by some of the first Christian missionaries. But they were going to be dealing with this particular theme. And so James jumps right into the theme of suffering. Suffering. Um, or as he tends to call it, trials and temptations. Trials and temptations. Remember last week we gave the uh, book of James a little subtitle. I decided we were going to call it, Don't Get the Wrong Idea. Don't Get the Wrong Idea. So this week we'll see James saying, Don't Get the Wrong Idea about your trials and temptations. Anyone here ever have a trial or a temptation? Okay, good. So this is going to be very relevant. Okay, how do you think about your trials? How do you think about your suffering? And, and when you think about your temptations, where do they come from? How do, how do you deal with them? And, and what helps you think about them in the right way? Uh, let's go ahead and read what James has to say about this in chapter 1. For now, just verses 2 to 4. He says this, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness.'" 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, These first few verses, James wants to make sure we don't get the wrong idea about the value of our suffering, in particular the value of our trials, the value of our trials. James, as, as you may have noticed again if you read his letter this week, is very blunt and he's very straightforward in his writing style. And so he's not very subtle when he tells us how we should think about our trials. He doesn't put his arm around us, try to sympathize with us or anything like that. He just says it straight out. He says, look, when you have trials, consider them all joy. All joy. And the word all, by the way, modifies joy, not trials. So he's not saying just consider all your trials joy, although he probably would say that. What he's really saying here is these trials that you're having, the things you're going through, consider them all joy. We might today, we might say total joy, perfect joy, pure joy. We might even say absolute joy. Consider all your trials that you have absolute joy. Now, those words are usually reserved for other times, not trials, right? Those words are usually reserved for our wedding day or the birth of a child or when we get that dream job or when our team wins the championship. Those are the times of, of pure joy, right? Those are the times of, of elation and ultimate happiness. James says, yeah, when you go through trials, that's how you should think. Why? Is James some sort of masochist? Does he enjoy pain? You know, woo pain and suffering, my favorite, bring it on. Is that James? No, he doesn't, he doesn't enjoy the pain. Nor does he say that we should not ask God for relief from the pain. If you go to chapter 5, you're going to see James saying, is anyone here suffering? You're going through something? Pray about it. Is anyone hurting? Is anyone sick? Go to the elders and seek healing. James does not relish the pain. But here's the point. He rejoices at the result of the pain. He rejoices at the result of his pain. He explains himself very clearly in verses 2 and 3. He says, suffering is meant to produce steadfastness, perseverance, and the more perseverance we have, the more perfect we are, the more mature we are, and the more like Jesus we become. And to James, and I know he wants us to think this way too, anything that makes you more like Jesus is a cause for celebration. Anything that makes you more like Jesus is a cause for celebration. Why? Because that's the best thing there is. Becoming more like Jesus in any way is the best thing that could ever happen to us, so it's cause for celebration. Yes, even in our suffering, and maybe especially in our suffering, because suffering is so potent when it comes to making us more like Jesus. Author Robertson McQuilkin once wrote this, that suffering is perhaps the only shortcut to spiritual growth. The only shortcut to spiritual growth. Have you ever experienced that? Is he right? Well, what kind of suffering is he talking about? What kind of suffering is happening to James's readers here? We mentioned that some of them had likely undergone persecution, which had driven them out of Jerusalem and into other parts of the empire, so they had moved, they were in a new place. But James says in verse 2, he says that, that suffering takes on various forms, various forms. The word means manifold or all kinds. So James is referring to all kinds of of suffering, all kinds of trials you might go through. So, So persecution, yes, definitely. Poverty, 
Loss of job, loss of income, loss of status? Yes. In fact, if you read through the book, it gives us several hints that James's congregation is not really on the higher end of things financially. They're going through some poverty, most of them. What about like rejection or betrayal by family or betrayal by friends, betrayal in your relationships, that kind of suffering? Would that be included? Yes. Loss of or separation from loved ones? Yes. Physical pain? and weakness, and disease, yes. In short, whatever your trial is, whatever your trial is, it is covered by James's book here and by this word. Yes. Now, how do these trials affect you? How do they affect us? Well, they hurt, right? They hurt. They disappoint. They, have, they bring us grief. This is real stuff. Our trials are not just unpleasantries. They can be devastating. They can be terrifying. They can be agonizing. They can take us to a very dark place. This is no joke. But what our trials ultimately do, if we let them, if we let them, is to break our tendency to trust in other things besides God for our ultimate worth, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate comfort and joy. See what happens in our fallen nature? We take things that God has given us to enjoy, the good things in life. We take relationships and jobs and money and physical comfort and pleasure and all these good things that God has given us to enjoy. But instead of just enjoying them, we have a tendency in our fallen nature to become totally dependent on these things and to make them our ultimate joy, to make them the things that we absolutely cannot live without. And when we suffer, when we suffer, when we go through a trial, one of these things always takes a hit. Our finances, maybe, our relationships, our body, our reputation. At least one of these things will take a hit when we go through a trial. We undergo a loss, and that hurts. But God is still there, and he remains faithful to us. And he is using this loss to remind us that the only thing that we really can't live without is him. The only thing we can't live without is is God. He wants us to cling to Him in the midst of our pain and our loss and to not let go but to hang on to Him. That's the meaning of the word steadfastness. It means steady at the helm. It means hang on in the midst of the storm with the icy blast hitting us square in the face until we learn to put all of our other loves in their proper places and to find our ultimate joy in knowing Him because He is the ultimate joy, He is the ultimate comfort, and He is the ultimate lover of our souls. We were made to find our home and our rest in God. Nothing else will do. Especially in God through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was everything for us. Have we trials and temptations cumbered with a load of care? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. But don't stop there. Dwell on who God is. Dwell on His power. Dwell on His mercy. Dwell on His love. Dwell on His faithfulness. Dwell on His compassion. Dwell on how much He loves you and what He's done for you in Christ already and how committed He is to you. As we do this, as we come to Him, we grow in our likeness to Him. We become more centered on God and less dependent on the fleeting pleasures and the creature comforts of this world. And James basically says that in order for this growth to happen, suffering is not optional. It's not like an extra. It's essential. 
It's essential. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Literally, let it do its perfect work because that is how we get to full maturity in Christ and the trials are just part of the equation. Okay, so there's something there about the value of of the suffering of the trials, right? At least theoretically, we understand that in our heads if not in our hearts right now. So let's look at the second passage, which is also here in chapter 1, and it starts in verse 12. And... um, This is where James says, don't get the wrong idea about something else. Starting in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, okay, sounds familiar, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. <clears throat> James is saying here, don't get the wrong idea not just about the value of your trials, but don't get the wrong idea about the source of your temptations. The source of your temptations. Now, why would we mix trials and temptations? Aren't they two different things? It's interesting. Notice how James almost seems to seamlessly move between the two, going from verse 12 to verse 13 here. But aren't they different? Well, yeah, they are. Trials you can think of are different than temptations. But you know what? In the original language, they're the same exact word. The same exact Greek word. These two things are both tests of our faith, and they have that in common, but they are much more often much more connected to each other than we realize. James wants us to make sure here we understand that when we are tempted to sin, when we're tempted to sin, you all know what that feels like, that it doesn't come from God. That's what he says. He says it comes from our flesh. It comes from our own fallen nature. And with some kinds of temptation, when we think about it, that seems like a no-brainer, right? that there's something in us that that is really the source of the temptation. I think most of us realize that we're walking along the street, the person walking in front of us drops a wallet full of cash, and then he turns the corner and doesn't notice, and there's the wallet full of cash. Are we supposed to say, oh, wow, look what God just did. Look what God just put in my path. Is he tempting me to steal? You know? Or that sexually suggestive image comes up on the Internet in some random Google search, and, and you say, oh, look what God just put in front of me. Does he want me to click on that? Is he tempting me to lust? No, that, that that's also comes from in here, folks. Like I said, hopefully that kind of temptation, obviously, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? Our own flesh, what James calls our own desire, is what's being awakened within us and enticing us, dragging us, he says in one translation, into sin. It's not God. It's not God. But those are the easy ones to think about at least. What about the other times when we're tempted? I would suggest to you that we are much more susceptible to temptation when we are in the midst of a trial. We are much more susceptible to temptation often when we're in the midst of a trial, when we're in pain, when we are disappointed with something or let down, when we're in fear that something terrible might take place, when we've been waiting for God to answer us in our distress for a long time, but nothing seems to be happening. 
Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before he died, he took his disciples with him into that garden. He gave them some instructions. Remember what they were? Watch and pray. Why? So that you don't enter into temptation. Now, why did he say that? What kind of temptation were Peter and John and James and maybe the others, what, what were they in danger of giving into? It wasn't like the temptations we were thinking about earlier having to do with you know, greed or lust or something like that. No, it was different. Why did Jesus say that? He said it because he knew they were about to go through an intense trial, an intense time of testing. They were about to see their Lord dragged away in chains as a criminal. And that in that time of testing, they were going to be tempted to lose faith and to walk away from him. Maybe they would deny his name. Maybe they would turn on each other. Maybe they would give up on Jesus permanently. Who knows what might happen in that kind of stress? Maybe that kind of pain, that kind of confusion would even give them what they thought maybe would be an excuse to fall away. Nobody walks away from Jesus when things are going great with him, right? But what about when the roof of our comfortable little Christian house caves in and we don't understand why it happened? What about, let's put it this way, if God stops obeying our rules and meeting our expectations, maybe we think we're justified now in not meeting his expectations. In other words, maybe he's tempting us to sin, or maybe he's at least providing us an excuse. That's the kind of thinking that I think James is warning us against. You know, when people fall into various addictions, sexual addictions, substance addictions, even addictions to things like overeating. Yes, there is a chemical, physical, neurological component that ends up getting involved and it makes that addiction very hard to break, but that's not how it starts. That's not how it starts. Almost every addiction begins with a behavior that is an improper response to pain. And that pain might include, in some cases, disappointment with God. Why didn't God fix this problem? Why didn't God give me this blessing I was praying for? Why didn't God show up? I guess he didn't care. So I am now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run to something easier that I know will work, that I know will take away the pain, even though it can destroy me, because dealing with God is just way too hard. I don't understand him. James says, no, no, that's the decision point. He says, that's when you hang on. That's when you don't give up. That's when you don't let go. There's, there's a crown of life, he says, at the end of this road if you turn to God. God may be leading you through the trial, but he isn't the one providing the temptation. He gives us all good things, James says in the next couple of verses. The temptation doesn't come from him, but the victory will. And the Christ-likeness that you will gain as a result of this whole thing also comes from him, just like every other good and perfect gift comes from him. And if you fall, like Peter did, Get back up. Because just like Jesus was praying for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail, Jesus is also advocating for you. Jesus, Christian, is praying for you that your faith won't fail, that you'll turn. You know, this is, this is kind of, a, of an easy, not so big a deal compared to a lot of kinds of suffering, but like some of you, I suffer from migraine headaches. 
and uh, they've gotten easier to deal with for the last few years because I found a medication that kind of takes off the edge. But every once in a while, I still get a doozy. And it happened just a few weeks ago at General Counsel. And I, I will tell you that when I have a migraine headache, I am much more vulnerable to certain temptations. My patience level drops to zero. My irritability meter goes up like 1,000%. I get depressed more easily. I get angry more easily. I can be not so nice in the way that I talk to people, especially my family and people that are close to me. And I can get very frustrated with God because I wonder, God, what's the point? What good is this possibly achieving? God, why would you let me go through this pain when I know you can snap your fingers at any moment and take it away if you want to? Well then, I guess you can't blame me for being a jerk. Because God, if you're not going to hold up your end of the bargain by taking away my pain, then why should I hold up my end of the bargain by obeying you? Now, I won't say those things out loud because I'm a pastor, right? But at some level, that thought process is available to me, and it's available to you too. But you know what? That is a totally unbiblical way of thinking. It's a totally wrong way of thinking. There is no bargain between you and God. There never was. You, don't, you didn't earn your salvation, and you don't earn anything by your obedience, nor do you obligate God to bless you in some way. We don't have any chips to bargain with. All the salvation, all the holiness, all the blessing, all, everything comes from Him. He's the giver. Our role is to trust Him. That's it. That's no bargain. And if you think about it, there's really a better question to ask here than who is the source of the trial. I know we get all hung up on that. This come from God or Satan or me or the world. Or, you know, there's a better question to ask than, than, than what is the source of our temptation. The better question to ask is this. What is God trying to accomplish through this trial? And the corresponding question, by the way, is what is Satan trying to accomplish through this trial or temptation? Because I can guarantee you that for every trial you go through in life, God has an agenda for it and Satan has an agenda for it. And you're going to follow one or the other. Basically, God wants to use the trial to draw you closer to him. And Satan wants to use the trial to push you farther away from God. That's, it's that simple. Now, I, I think I know what Satan's agenda is in my migraine headaches. It's to make me have a hissy fit, accuse God of not loving me, and then use the pain as an excuse to fall into some kind of sin. But what's, what's God's agenda? in a migraine headache. Well, for one thing, he can use that migraine to, to break me of my addiction to physical ease and comfort. He can also use it to make me long for a place where there are no migraines. Thank the Lord. I can long for heaven, right? Oh, Lord, why, I look forward to that day. And that actually gives me more of an eternal perspective. I remember that right now, as long as I'm in this place, I have to deal with pain, not just migraines, but any other kind of pain as well. But thankfully, this place is not my home. And I need to remember that when, I, when, I'm, when I'm tempted, as I often am, to fall in love with this world, to get too comfortable here, and to start treating it like it is my home. Pain helps me get past that. The other thing that happens, by the way, when I have a bad migraine, and if you have migraines, you know this too, I am completely immobilized. I am, I am pretty much utterly useless when I have a migraine. So I have two choices, right? I can either get all bent out of shape thinking about what I'm missing out on and what I'm not getting done, 
Or I can hear the whisper of God saying to me, Paul, the world does not revolve around you. And when you rejoin the world at the end of this headache, it will not have fallen off its axis. Get over yourself. You're a lousy God. Why don't you leave that part to me? Brothers and sisters, I'm serious. There is so much freedom in realizing that you don't need to control everything and that sometimes, no matter what's happening, you just have to take a deep breath and say, okay, God, I can't do anything about this, but you're in charge, not me. And I'm going to trust you. So instead of, of, of worrying today, maybe I'll pray instead. Okay. So much for the source of our temptations. We looked at that, looked at the value of our trials. Let me end just by taking a couple of minutes and talking about what I'm going to call the payoff. The payoff. Because one wrong idea about our, our suffering, our trials, is that they're meaningless. Um, another is that they're useless. But, but there's another wrong way of thinking, and that's thinking that there's no reward, because there is one. James is reminding us here that there's a payoff, there's a reward for the suffering we go through as believers, and that's going to be in chapter 5. So turn to chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The basic idea of this last section here in in chapter 5 is that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he can either find us at each other's throats, having turned on each other in the midst of all the stress and anxiety, or he can find us patiently and expectantly waiting for him. And James gives us the example of a farmer. Why does the farmer plant his seeds? Well, because he's expecting a payoff. Now, he doesn't control the weather. He doesn't know when the early and the late rains exactly are going to come, but he waits expectantly for them and then for the fruit eventually to appear. That's his payoff. So what's ours? Let me back up a step. The book of Hebrews says something very interesting about Jesus. It says in Hebrews 5.8, it says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Isn't that amazing? Why would Jesus, the very Son of God, have to learn how to obey, have to learn obedience? What, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus had to learn by experience what it was like to have to obey God in the midst of trials and temptations. He had to go through it. He had to experience it. In other words, he had to go through the same school of suffering that you and I have to go through, only he went a lot farther into it. Jesus had to earn a PhD in pain. And more than that, he got straight A's. 
He was subjected to the most intense pain and suffering anyone ever faced, physical weakness and pain, betrayal by friends, persecution by enemies, rejection by the vast majority of the people that he preached to, poverty, homelessness, ultimately being forsaken by everybody, including God the Father himself. And Jesus went through all of it, and at every turn, even with the devil whispering in his ear, and even though he admitted to the Father that he didn't want to go through with it, He still obeyed. He still entrusted himself to God, and he refused to short-circuit the process by seeking an easy fix for the pain. But Jesus, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, was looking for a payoff. What was his payoff? Remember what it was? It was you and me. It was the bride. He was earning himself a bride. He was getting a spouse. And all the time, more than that, more than just, just, just bringing us to himself like that, he, all the time he was working on a gift for us. The whole time he was on earth. You ever work on a gift for a long time? Some of you who make crafts and, 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 and sewing you know, creations and that sort of thing. You work for a long time, maybe on a quilt or something, and you look forward to just give it to the person. It, it represents so much of your work and labor and time. And, and Jesus was working on something like that when he was living that he wanted to give to us as his bride. You know what he was working on? He was working up a perfect record of righteousness. He was obeying God every single time so that on the cross, as he absorbed all the pain and condemnation of our sin upon himself, he could give us in return that perfect record of righteousness that he had earned so that we wouldn't just be his bride. We would be his holy bride. His holy bride. And when Jesus comes back, what a day that will be when we get to wear those gleaming robes of white unashamed, and we get to go be with him forever, that's a pretty good payoff. But wait, there's more. Because of what Jesus has done for us, our suffering and pain in this life has now been transformed. We don't just suffer. We suffer with him. We suffer with him. Romans 8, 17 says, if if we share in his sufferings, we also share in his glory. We're united to him. Our suffering honors him. Our suffering even proclaims him. Second Corinthians tells us how we, we actually proclaim Christ through our suffering, that we carry around the death of Christ in our bodies. People see that. They see Jesus in our patient endurance. And don't forget, our suffering is also an eternal, has an eternal payoff. What does the Bible say? Romans 8, 18, For I consider our, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to be the glory that will be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians four seventeen. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back, all of our suffering, all of your suffering, all of my suffering, Every bit of it, every moment of it will in some mysterious way be transformed into joy. It will be transformed into joy. It's like an investment. It's like a deposit with an infinite interest rate payable to us in what Psalm 16 calls abundant joy and eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Not because of what we've earned, but because of what he earned for us. Beauty for ashes. 
dancing instead of crying, our pain turned into gold. Now, if you know this, and if you count on this, and if you meditate on this wonderful truth, especially when you're going through times of adversity and struggle and pain, you will become steadfast. Not, not stoic, not, not without feeling, not cold, not immune to pain. You will still cry and grieve, but through the tears, even through the times of loss, you will become steadfast, hopeful, patient, and more like Jesus, because you will have an anchor for your soul that is connected to a place that the pain can't touch. So don't get the wrong idea about your trials. Don't get the wrong idea about the suffering that you go through in this life. It's not meaningless. It's not an excuse to sin, but it does have a great and eternal reward. Let's pray.